Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. tried to go for a walk today and it's a new experience for me walking in this kind of uh, countryside with very narrow streets uh, with very tall uh, hedges and I got a little bit lost uh, even though I had brought the very good Gaia House map along because um, I tried to take what looked like a shortcut kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I also discovered that uh, Google Maps has not yet mapped out West <laughs> <laughs> So that was also no help. <laughs> so I found myself in this, um, you know, very narrow lanes uh, in which, um, yes, I'm still figuring out this like sudden oncoming tractors and then Put them to the side, and then um, you know the other parts. Uh, that's quite nice of walking through the uh, sheep pastures, um, but even that, I'm not familiar with sort of the way to behave with sheep, like the right of way, because <laughs> there were sheep sitting on what was to me the human pathway. <laughs> and, uh, I didn't know, like, well, should I go towards them and they move or? Like, will they get mad? Or, um, am I supposed to make a particular noise? <laughs> so, so, um, so I'm you know, figuring it out, and uh, it seems to uh, it, it seems to have come back here successfully. <laughs> but uh, it just reminded me also of this sense that we have as human beings in our life, you know, of, of wandering around, basically. And, uh, you know, I was trying to get back to Gaia House, to the nice uh, mint pea soup and all that. And, um, you know, it's like we seek this, uh, our home, like we seek refuge. (coughs) And the rules are unfamiliar to us many times about how to find that, like how to get there. And you find yourself in mental passages with oncoming bulldozers and not sure. Right, like how to get to the side, or when you're approaching some mental object that seems to be sitting in the pathway, like what should I do? How do I deal with this? So there's something poignant about this, you know, this sense of um, seeking our way in our life, and you know, the Buddha talked about this, like about all of us. Um, wandering in samsara, I could say. So like wandering around in this kind of endless round of rebirth, different lives, and uh, trying to be happy, basically. You know, seeking uh, some kind of lasting well-being, uh, happiness, security, is what all of us want. 
and yet uh, not having good maps, you know, not being born with a manual of how to do that. And then the manuals that seem to be provided uh, from society is like, oh, do this, get married, have a kid, try and get as much money, try to get this kind of job, or, you know, whatever your family conditioning thing might be, <coughs> uh, buy a house or something like that. Even that stuff seems unreliable as a map. So we can learn this by observation uh, and also from our own experience of life. Of even if you seem to accomplish these things that you're told you're supposed to do, it doesn't seem to work you know, in some way. We have um, in the U.S. these um, magazines like uh, People Magazine and um, Us Magazine. I think you have some here with the OK exclamation or hello or something like that, right? <laughs> and um, you know, they're basically accounts of people who seem to have succeeded in this game, who are good-looking and wealthy and famous and... Um, I sometimes uh, joke that it really should be called like Dukkha Weekly. (laughs) Dukkha is the term that the Buddha used to describe the uh, basic unreliability or unsatisfactoriness of uh, of life. Because even if you are very good looking and uh, famous and uh, very wealthy, you know, these magazines uh, mostly chronicle the broken marriages and uh, addictions and, uh, you know, just ups and downs of people even in this kind of deva-like realm of uh, celebrity. So if it seems to not necessarily be working for you, uh, it's not because you're doing something wrong. It's because that formula is not actually the uh, formula for finding refuge. So then, uh, you already know this in some way, but because you come on retreat. Right? So you come on retreat, and uh, people come to retreat with a variety of different experiences and backgrounds, and you know, what is it about this practice that can help us with that? So you sit and there's so many different things that happen in the body, in the mind. So you have the experience of physical pain, of the experience of a mental difficulty coming through. There are moments of beauty and there are moments of confusion. Moments of sleepiness and moments of wanting to jump out of your skin and run out of here. So, in case you have had any of those, that is a very normal uh, occurrences, normal map of human experience on retreat, certainly, but in general. So, uh, let me ask for your nonverbal polling. So, how many people here have felt? sleepy, drowsy in the last few days. Okay, look around, you can see. How many people have felt um, restless 
in some way, mental, physical restlessness. Okay, yep. Pretty much everyone. How many people here have had even a glimmering of doubt? Like, what am I doing here? Do I know what I'm doing? Am I doing this practice right? Maybe you could include doubt in the teachers. Who are these people? Why should I come to this retreat? I should have come when this other person is doing this. So, you know, these, uh, if it is any comfort, are among the common challenges that uh, we have in practice that the Buddha, in fact, chronicled uh, 2,600 years ago, that humans face when trying to steady the heart and mind and embark on this path of finding true refuge. And... For many people, you come on retreat and you might have some idea of what it would be like. I remember one of my teachers telling me that uh, going on retreat is like um, buying a ticket for a trip, uh, but you don't know where you're going. So you don't know exactly what the destination is. And Many times you will buy the trip based on your mental brochure from your last retreat. Um, But the conditions are different. So then things play out as they do here. So you can see if you can have heard in your mind any time the thought, um, my retreat would be going well if not for blank. As the thought arises, the retreat would be really good if not for this blank. And blank could be Um, the knee pain or the sleepiness. It could be the person next to you who you are finding breathes too loud. It could be the weather, the food. Um, It could be anything, internal or external, uh, that we put in that blank. And and my experience as a practitioner is that uh, everything can reveal everything that you need in order to be fully free. So anything, including the most mundane, including your sorrow, including your foot pain, including sleepiness itself, including restlessness, including doubt. So if you hear in your mind this sentence, if not for blank, everything would be fine. Imagine like a spotlight is shining on whatever is in that blank. And that itself is that which it is most helpful to pay attention to. Like that for now is your vehicle for liberation. It's hard to believe this, because most likely it's not the vehicle for liberation you would have chosen. <laughs> it's usually uh, not as glamorous at all, you know, in human experience. From my experience of practice also, I've, I've had many times in which there's a sense of resistance to something that's very obviously here. <coughs> It's like, oh, if only this thing was gone, then I could really practice. My retreat would be really good. And it's, I think of it as like being in the Dharma cafeteria, and you get put something on your plate, right? 
And then you sit looking at it and you think, like, I want what that guy's having. <laughs> it's like, this person looks very peaceful and beatific, and they're, they're walking nice and slowly. And like, I want what that guy's having. I don't want this. You know. But basically, you don't get anything new until you eat what's on your plate. <laughs> like, like in school. <laughs> You're not going to get something new. So you can sit there staring at that person as long as you want. <laughs> and both, you're not going to get what they get. But also, I would caution you not to believe your mind about what you think is happening with that person. Because you really don't know. <laughs> like, people are sitting here seeming to be perfectly uh, calm and happy, but as you know, chaos is going on in the mind the mind has no shame and will think anything <laughs> at all times. <laughs> so the story of, of the Buddha is one in which um, he practiced also quite diligently. And on the night of his awakening, it said that he took the resolve that he wanted to answer these questions about uh, suffering, you know, about life and suffering and, and what that is about and understanding suffering and the causes of suffering was really the big driver for him. So if you are experiencing suffering right now and are feeling perplexed by that, if you feel like you're drowning in that, if you feel lost and alone in that, you really have come to the right place. And he described suffering and investigated it in great detail. So this word dukkha uh, sometimes translated as suffering, but also um, as an unreliability or an unsatisfactory aspect <coughs> of our very existence, of this life of experiential reality. So this is not to be said there are no happinesses to be found. There's an, it's not saying there's no joy in life. But it's saying that fundamentally it's difficult, in fact impossible to find something that is permanently reliable. So here's his list. You can see if you can relate to this. So this talks about this in the uh, Four Noble Truths, right, for those who are familiar so birth is dukkha. So I use this word dukkha. This is the suffering, stress, unsatisfactory. So birth is dukkha. So those of you who have given birth know this directly, personally. <laughs> uh, actually, while we've been here, I have a very large uh, extended family, and uh, two of my cousins had babies. Uh, and it both is very joyful, you know, got sent a picture, happy, but uh, hours of physical pain you know, in the uh, exertion, and the birth, and then, in fact, for the baby themselves, it's like kind of a rude awakening to be popped out of the fluid into this cold world. Aging is dukkha. So, Aging is something that none of us can escape. When you're very young, 
it seems like it's a good thing. And, uh, you know, when you're five, you want to be five and a half, and you want to be six, and like this. But I think uh, everyone in this room has probably passed that uh, <laughs> point of stretching to the next age. Uh, and then you experience the difficulty of the body, right? Uh, so the body ages, whether we like it or not. And it becomes less flexible. Uh, things start to change. Uh, and the hair and the bones and the energy... In the, one of the aspects of the, the teachings around um, the elements, uh, Catherine's been talking about some of the elements and recognizing ourselves as earth. Uh, one of the elements is the fire element. And um, there's this ancient idea that uh, it's like we have this log within us that's burning, that's our life. And then when the log uh, extinguishes is when your life ends. But you don't know how long your log is. You don't know how big your log is. And babies are, uh, you know, come out sort of moist and smooth. Uh, but then as the log burns, uh, hair starts to turn gray, right, ashy. The skin gets drier in some way. Uh, so, you know, this is not... Uh, in accordance with our current scientific understanding, but it's interesting to think about. You know, this, like, the, the truth is that we don't know how long our life will last. Adjustment. We're going to bring it close. Thank you. So you look out the microphone. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we experience this frequently here. Unsatisfactory nature of uh, the sound system uh, and of gravity, also, because you know, I set it up one way and then like slowly it reaches back. Okay, so birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, death is dukkha. So, this is, uh, this is true even for those who you know, die a peaceful death. So it's painful for us when those we love die, and it's not in our control. We imagine for ourselves sometimes our own death as being, uh, you know, lying in a room with candles and people around us and uh, nice music and so on. But the truth is, like nobody knows when they're going to die, and nobody knows how they're going to die. So in, in the, the Dharma, this is the teachings of the truth of the way things are. It's not considered pessimistic to think about this. It's considered actually realistic to face this. And in fact, if we could recognize that we ourselves are going to die, and everyone that we know is going to die, we might live our life with a little bit more care. If we recognize we might not know when we see someone, if that will be the last time that we see them. They might make us hold grudges less or treat each other with more kindness. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are dukkha. 
So all of these difficult mind states that come through. Association with the unloved is dukkha. So being put in proximity to that which we do not like. And that could be sounds we don't like, smells we don't like, neighbors we don't like. Separation from the loved is dukkha. So painful to be separated from your loved ones. And it happens in life, for short periods, for long periods. It's not in our control. Not getting what we want is dukkha. That kind of covers a lot, right? (laughs) And in a world in which so much is not in our control, that means that Yeah, a lot of the time there is this unsatisfactoriness or unreliability there. And the last kind of blanket one that he has is, uh, in summary, the five clinging aggregates are dukkha. So for those who are familiar, that's a particular way of kind of slicing and dicing our human experience. And when there's clinging in connection with that, then there's always going to be some suffering there, too. So it's a pretty comprehensive list. It's a pretty comprehensive list, and I found it somewhat comforting myself, because when you hear this list and you reflect on your life, even the ones that people say, like, oh yeah, no, this is good, there's something often like, just a little bit, it's not doing it fully in that. So there's something kind of normalizing in this recognition. Like, yeah, it's not that you're crazy. You know, this, this is essentially some characteristic of all of these experiences of life. So the word uh, dukkha, I understand, is from um, something having to do with the wheel of a cart and then the axle not fitting properly in it. So that when the wheel turns, it's like, it's a little off. Since uh, you probably haven't been in an ox cart recently, um, a more modern thing that uh, can happen to us is if you're in a, a cafe, for example, and there's a table that has four legs, and one of them is like a little bit off <laughs> the others, right? So maybe you're having tea with your friend, and the tea is there, and one of you puts the elbow on the table, <laughs> and a little spills, oh, okay. And then again, a little bit later, it's like, <laughs> they try to stuff napkins and things like that. <laughs> so there's a way in which life is constantly like that. You know, like it seems like it should be okay, but it's like, <laughs> right? little tea spilling, little messes, 
stuffing napkins and things. Uh, so, back to the story of the Buddha. So he's, uh, he's taken his resolution, right? So he's investigated this dukkha and he's understood this, right? He's really, and, and it really is his driving, a driving force for him, you know, in some very poignant way. And um, according to the story, he was actually very wealthy and from a family in which he had everything provided to him. But he had seen, he had observed uh, on different occasions, uh, old age, sickness, death, and it cast him into this kind of existential quandary about this. So he had investigated it through various meditative uh, ways. And then on the, the night of his enlightenment, he took this resolve, I will not get up from this seat until I have seen through this until my quest is finished, until I have understood what it is that I need to understand. And so according to the story, as he sits, he's assailed during the night, and he sits all through the night. And he's assailed first by these armies of Mara. So Mara is like the character in the Buddhist uh, stories that's like the Kind of the tempter uh, could be like the considered like the uh, devil a little bit, but he's actually Mara's role is to keep us tethered within the world of sense experience. So the first time we have Mara telling Buddha, like, oh, you know, why don't you give this up? You could actually go back to your palace and have all these nice things, beautiful food sexual experiences and music and you might have been assailed by this army at different times here so but the Buddha sits steady through this so he's not moved off his seat he's tried all this before so he knows that's, that's going nowhere so the next army of Mara that comes is to scare him off his seat so terrifying images, the most horrific things you could experience, physically, mentally. But once again, the Buddha's training helps him. He sits steady. He's not knocked off his seat. And then according to this story, the last army of Mara that comes is the army of doubt. So who are you to be seeking this understanding? Who do you think you are? And according to the stories, actually the statue in the back has this, many of the statues have this, he touches the ground. And in that touch, it's, it's like a nonverbal answer. Like the earth itself bears witness to my right to be here, to understand. And so in that moment, the army of Mara's dissolved, disappears, and he gains full awakening. So there's a way in which every time we come and sit here is a very courageous act. 
there's a way in which every time that we sit, we're taking some resolve, maybe not for the entire uh, night, but for that period. And let me be present with whatever it is that arises in physical life, in mental life. And let me try not to be knocked off my seat. It doesn't look like much, the sitting here and breathing, but it's really something. Because as you know, all of these different forces can come. All of the things you've been holding at bay by being busy in your life. By distracting yourself when things get difficult. So it really takes tremendous courage and I appreciate that for everyone here. And it's good to appreciate that for yourself. And many times we will get knocked off our seat. And that's okay. Because that's why this is practice. So you can't get knocked off your seat by grief, by physical pain, by sexual fantasies, even by boredom. But each time that we notice we get knocked off our seat, we can learn something and maybe gain a little bit more facility with that. So, for most of us, you could say, like, let's say this is the entirety of our experience as human beings, this paper. It's like the physical experiences we have, the mental experiences we have. So, for most of us, there's some that we're okay with, we can handle them fine. And then there's some that we find it very difficult to be with. But when these come up in regular life, the ones that are difficult to be with, usually we find some way to squirm away. So for example, uh, physical pain. As simple as physical pain. So normally if you're sitting somewhere and you have a pain or an itch, you automatically will deal with it by itching or moving. But here, when we're taking our posture, there's a way in which we're called upon to maintain some stability of the body, which facilitates the stability of the mind, and then to do our best to investigate the pain or the itch. So regular life pain comes up, and basically we move, we shift, we push it away. Maybe some emotions we have that we're okay with, but some we're not. So maybe we don't uh, feel comfortable with being angry. So if anger comes up, we have to push it away, put on blinders. Maybe it's difficult for us to have uh, memories of childhood or being a teenager. So if those memories come up, we have to push them away. Or maybe we uh, get a drink 
and watch TV constantly. Maybe we're uh, not okay with having sexual feelings, so if that comes up, we have to push it away. Maybe we don't think of ourselves as jealous, but sometimes jealousy comes up, so then we have to push that away. So you can see where this is going, right? So for many of us, the area that we get to live in is this tiny little crunched up, strange shape, in which only when things that fit within this come through, that work with our identity, uh, that align with our ideas of who we are, and that are comfortable, then we can be present with it. But anything else comes up that's outside of this little shape, we have to put on blinders, we have to dodge, uh, we have to seek escape. So it's not that much fun, right? It's kind of like crunched up and uh, not that much room there. So the first thing that happens as we start to sit is all this stuff starts to come back and our first job is to recognize that, you know, to do our best to actually allow to feel, to know. And as we start to relax and open, kind of get back all of this stuff, not all of which is skillful or wholesome or we want to act from, but at least to know it, to recognize it. So in the uh, insight meditation uh, in the US, there's a joke that um, when you start doing practice in particular, you get a lot of insight, but a lot of it is bad news. And meaning the bad news is the stuff that we pushed away, you know, the things that we were not okay with recognizing. So today we worked with uh, opening to emotions and moods and different mind states. And there's a way of working with it that we practiced that's going deep into it and recognizing it for what it is, feeling the energy of it, trying not to push it away or indulge it. In some ways feel in a very moment-to-moment way what the arising of that energetic pattern is like. So through doing this, then, it can help us to disidentify, to not believe that we are that emotion, but to be present with that in some kind of attentive and open way. We can see that the emotion itself, like a weather pattern, is also impermanent. It's part of nature. We are part of nature. And this too is something that arises and passes. So another um, way that you can work with particularly difficult emotions that come up, or um, particularly, let's say, a story 
of uh, a difficult thing that happened to you is to recognize in some way the, the macro level of it. So the technique of practice that I described earlier is kind of going to the micro level, right? feeling the moment-to-moment vibrations. So sometimes it can help to do a little bit of reflection, if you will. And it's hard, it's hard to remember this in the moment of something very difficult happening to you, or in going through a lot of grief about something that's happened to you, but basically anything difficult that's happened to you, you're not alone with that. And there's a way in which you are part of this uh, fellowship of difficulty, of dukkha. In that very moment, with seven billion people on the planet, at least, there is someone else who is also going through this. In fact, there are probably thousands, if not millions, of people who are also going through this loss, this suffering, this difficulty. So this is not at all meant to diminish that which has happened to you, but to help to bear it in some way by universalizing, by recognizing that our story is also part of the human story. So I found this actually somewhat comforting. And this can be small things or big things, you know, like, getting lost in a different country, right? which happened to me today. Uh, so, you know, at that very moment that I'm like walking around the hedgerows, like trying to figure out how to get back here, uh, I was actually part of a fellowship of people lost in different countries. <laughs> in fact, probably someone was lost in my hometown <laughs> at that very moment in San Francisco, like trying to figure out the hills and to get home and um, if you have a flat tire and you curse about that you are actually surely part of the fellowship of flat tires <laughs> in that moment people by the side of the road in the mud trying to get where they're going car tires, bicycle tires variety people who uh, have experienced loss of a loved one. It's really heartbreaking. And also you're part of a universal fellowship of heartbreak around this. You know, people from so many different countries, so many different circumstances. It doesn't matter with this kind of thing, the language that you speak, the food that you eat. You know, the grief, the pain is there. But there's something universal about that, that recognizing can help you feel not as alone with it. You're part of the human family in this way. So there's some relationship of for me with this, to taking refuge. So both taking refuge 
in recognizing ourselves as part of nature and taking refuge in recognizing our lives as part of a larger community of people in the world. And for me, in the connection that I have to uh, practice and to the teachings, the shorthand that I use is uh, I take refuge in the Dhamma. So it could be that there's different words for you that work. But just reminding yourself that there is something larger than just my own individual story and problems and struggles. It doesn't actually fix the flat tire or in some ways make you suddenly know where you're going or bring back the one who has passed. And yet it can help you to connect to this larger web. It can help you connect to not being as alone in that. So when we think about what it would be like to be fully awakened, like the Buddha, enlightened. And usually the idea that we have is that everything goes well for you. Like that everyone would treat you really nicely, and uh, you'd have this nice glow, and you know, birds would land on your shoulder, (laughs) chirp, and... Stuff like this, but you know, actually, from having uh, read the story of the Buddha, and um, even you could reflect on many other very wise people in different traditions, they too are subject to these factors, these forces of dukkha. So, the Buddha himself uh, was interested in this, you know, old age, sickness, and death, and then during the course of his life, he had a lot of difficulty. He, in fact, got old, got sick, and died. (laughs) And during his life, he had some uh, back pain, actually. He had done all these austerities, and uh, there's some passages where he says things like, um, my body is like an old cart held together by straps. Uh, and sometimes when he actually gets his um, attendant or one of his disciples to go and give the Dhamma talk for him uh, instead. <coughs> so during the course of his life also, there were people who tried to kill him. There were people who tried to divide his community. Uh, there were people who told lies about him, uh, pretended that... Um, He had done various bad things he hadn't done. So yeah, eventually he uh, he died from the story of eating some uh, food that uh, was sort of poisonous uh, that didn't agree with him, and he had a like stomach uh, infarction or something like that. And so yeah, his his physical body gave out, and he died. 
And in fact, even the place that he died, his, uh, his disciple um, Ananda said to him when he's dying, like, don't die here. Like, like this town is like this dusty, kind of like waddle and dog town. Like this, this is like nowhere as well. Don't die in this like, nowhere town. And it's like, oh, it's time to die. <laughs> So, Mini, I, I tell you this because it's easy for us in our mind to both idealize uh, what life would be like, uh, what life should be like, and to think, uh, you know, again, like my practice would be good if not for blank. So, as these difficulties come up for us you know, in our life, in our practice, um, it just can be helpful to shift our view on those. You know, it's not necessarily that something is wrong, right? That, that we're lost, or that a bird has crapped on us, or that uh, we're feeling sick, or that we're even grieving some loss. But all of this puts us you know, squarely on the human path. And the blessing of practice and of our opportunity here on retreat is that we get to learn how to work with this suffering in a different way. So it's the suffering that can lead to the end of suffering, and not just suffering that compounds on suffering. So please uh, hold yourself with a lot of kindness and compassion, particularly as you find yourself uh, getting lost in different ways, as you find yourself getting knocked off your seat, as you find yourself uh, wrapped up in mind states or oncoming tractors or uh, whatever it is that's difficult. I just trust that your continued courageous efforts as best you can with even the most unglamorous of situations is part of the path to awakening. So thank you for your attention tonight. And just sit together for a bit.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.